All right. Hey, church, let's jump into the scripture together. If you got Romans 12 open, that's where we're going to be. Open up to Romans chapter 12. We are in week three uh, of a series through this chapter. Uh, Each week, looking at kind of the series title, What is Our Response to God's Mercy? What does our life look like now as God changes us and as we trust in Jesus Christ? And we looked at in week one, if you remember, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Not conforming to the world, but allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us. And we ask the question, what kind of people are we becoming? Are we becoming like Christ or becoming like the world? And when we surrender to the Spirit and what God's Spirit wants to do in us, we begin to come, become like Christ. And in week two, we looked at what happens when, that, when the Spirit begins to change us. He changes how we see the people around us, that we don't think of ourselves as more highly than we ought to, that we, we view all others as one uh, and brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no caste system in the body of Christ. Union with Christ and unity with others. Now, if you missed either of those messages, I'd really encourage encourage you to go back and watch them or listen to them on our podcast or on our YouTube page because a lot of what I say this morning is really built on and building off of those two messages. So please go back and listen to those if you didn't. Uh, But I'll just give you a brief catch up. So in week one, we looked at these two charts. So here's the first one. We talked about how we are formed and shaped and conformed to the world. And a lot of times it's through the stories we believe about happiness, sexuality, all these things that our stories are being told to us every day. The habits like our phones, our relationships, and even our environment that we live in. But Romans 12, 2 talks about when we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, the second chart begins to happen. That the Holy Spirit begins to change us from the inside out. And it changes what we believe. We now begin to believe the scripture and we begin to practice reading the word and prayer and fasting and all these different ways of life and then also our community is changed. Now this morning we want to zero in on that bottom right corner. We want to zero in on community and ask this question, what does a biblical or real community look like that is transformed by the Holy Spirit? Or in other words, what does it look like when I and you are changed by Jesus to love one another like God wants us to? That's where we're going. So let's look at the text first, Romans 12. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 9. And just going to read five verses. It's a really small paragraph, and yet it is packed full of great truth for us. So let's read it together, starting in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, in this passage, if you have your bulletin notes open, you'll see it in front of you, but we're going to see three things about community. Just in this passage alone, we're going to see the picture of community. What does it look like? the power for community, how do we get this kind of community, and then the missional effect of this community. What happens if we live like this as a people of God? So the picture, the power, and the missional effect. Let's first look at the picture, all right? What does community really look like? Just if, if I asked that question in this room right now, and I said, how would you define what real community looks like, look like, we'd probably get several different answers depending on what you think of it. 
And in fact, if you went out into our world and said, what does real community look like? You might get all sorts of opinions, and, and some of those would agree and disagree with even one another, but we're going to look at what the Scripture says and then compare that to all of our counterfeit versions of community. Now, in these five short verses, Paul lists all sorts of characteristics like sincerity, hating evil, loving good, sharing with the Lord's people, being faithful, all these kinds of things. But if I could summarize it in a sentence, I'm going to borrow from a guy named Scott McKnight who uh, wrote this book called Fellowship of Difference. He's a professor and a theologian at a Christian college. This is how he summarizes biblical community. He says, love is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone unto Christ-likeness. Now, if you've taken our Way of Life class, there's a plug for that. One starts up in, G- in June 5th. Uh, this is very familiar to you because this is what it means to live in community. This is what we try to practice, that love is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone unto Christ-likeness. Now, that's a thick stent- sentence, so let's talk about it phrase by phrase. First, that love is a rugged commitment. All of this is found in Romans 13. Real love, Paul says in verse 9, is sincere, hating evil and clinging to good. Real love is gritty and costly and sometimes painful. That word sincerity, literally in the Greek, is kind of without hypocrisy. That's what it means. Literally, it means to be truthful and without hypocrisy, to to not be just this niceness, this veneer of niceness on the outside, but to be gritty and true and loving. Now, this is what makes biblical community and love so different from the world around us today, because if you were to ask somebody out in our world, in our culture today, what does it mean to be loving, they would say probably something like this. Well, love means you totally accept me the way I am. Love means you cannot correct me or tell me I'm wrong. You must embrace me totally and fully in everything that I want. And if you don't, if you correct me or try to change me in any way, then we can't be friends and you actually hate me if you don't agree with me. This is our worldly concept of love today, but real love isn't like this, and we know it's not like that. It's not just a veneer of niceness, but it's a commitment, a genuine commitment, not hypocritical saying, I love you, and then doing nothing about it, but a genuine commitment to telling each other the truth. Real love, Paul says, hates what is evil. Literally, that word hate means to be horrified at evil. And we all get this in some ways because when someone you love dearly, whether it's your children or whether it's a friend or a family member, when they go through pain or when someone does, when evil is done to them, your reaction is horror, horrified. How, oh, I'm so angry. I'm so mad that my beloved is being hurt in some way. When evil is done to them, the emotions in our bodies is hate. In fact, you can't really love rightly without hating rightly because you hate when evil is done. But you don't just hate when evil is done to the person you love. You hate it when they create evil in themselves, when they choose destructive habits, when they choose bad choices and and have destructive relationships. We hate that kind of evil too because we know it's destroying them. And so real love, love without hypocrisy, says the truth. In fact, Ephesians 4, 5, 15 says to speak the truth in love, that we're honest and we're open and we share. Our goal is not to avoid offense, but to speak loving truth because we don't want our beloved to be destroyed. 
because we hate the evil. Proverbs 27 says it like this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I'd rather be wounded by a friend than kissed from an enemy. You think of Jesus being betrayed by Judas with a kiss. I love this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know him, he was a pastor during Nazi Germany in, in the Hitler age, and, and he had this amazing community of believers in that crazy environment. This is what he said, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Mm. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. That almost seems flip, doesn't it? Because we would say it's cruel to speak a reprimand, and it's loving to abandon one another to do whatever they want, and it's actually the opposite in biblical community, that it's cruel to say nothing, and it's loving to speak the truth. Not only do we hate what's evil, but verse 9 ends with saying that we cling to what is good. That word clinging is that same kind of rugged term. It actually means to be sticky like glue, that you're just stuck with one another because you want what is good for one another no matter what. The best way I can, I can illustrate this is with a game that my kids love to play, although they're older now, they don't play it as much, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Anytime I would try to leave the house, and I think this is like the default game all kids play, they jump on my legs and they wrap themselves around it and then you can't move. You're like a tree. And they're like, Daddy, walk. And so I'm like, ugh, ugh, you know, with these kids on my legs. And the bigger they get, the harder it is, right? But it's their desire. Like, Daddy, don't leave. And so they just grab, our, grab my legs so I can't go. And it's, it's kind of annoying, but also cute, right? But the best way I could describe it, like that is this kind of clinginess of saying, I'm not going to let you go into evil in your life. I'm clinging to what is good for you, what is morally upright, what is beneficial for your life. I'm clinging to that good for you. Now, the world would say that's judgmental and that's bigotry. That's actually hateful to cling to what's morally right and good. But we know that's not true, especially as parents. I'm sure there's been times in your kid's life where they say, Mom and Dad, I'm not happy with your choices for my life, right? Like, for example, if they want to eat ice cream and candy and you're like, you got to eat your green beans. And they're like, no, you hate me, right? In that moment, they're thinking of you as not, not being very loving, but actually you're clinging to what is good for them. Because you know they would destroy themselves if all they did was eat that. And I know it's a silly example, but so much of that is true in real life and relationships. That you hate to see your friend or your beloved destroy themselves by only doing what is immediately gratifying when it's literally killing them in their faith. And so we cling to what's good. A good illustration of this is something that happens a lot in our body. Uh, it's probably the best illustration I can think of this, of speaking the truth in love. We have so couples that come to do, uh, ask us to do their weddings. I just did a wedding yesterday for a couple, and this is such a cool story. So a lot of couples will come into Crossroads and say, yeah, hey, Pastor Matt or Matt, would you come and do our wedding? Would you marry us? Would you help us with that? And sadly, many of them, if not most of them, have already kind of bought into the culturally accepted norm that you are already living together and you're already sleeping together. And so they come to me and they sit in my office, they're already living together, already sleeping together, and the question is, what is the loving thing to do in that moment? Do I say, oh, sure, I'll do your wedding and I will just forget that you're living together and we'll just kind of ignore it and not really talk about it? Or do I say, no, get out of my office, heathen. You know, I'm not marrying you. Or do I say, you know what, friends? 
I love you, so I'm going to tell you the truth. What you're doing is wrong. And God's ways are always better. And when you commit to purity, you will never regret that. And God's ways are always good. And if you will commit to purity, I will do your wedding happily. And we'll come alongside you. Jared and Kelly McDermott have done so many counseling situations like this. In fact, this wedding we did yesterday is an amazing success story of that. That this couple came in a year ago and, and, and shared what I just said, and I shared what I said, and they were like, you know what, you're right. We need to repent. We need to live in purity, and we want to do things God's way. And now that couple's married and honoring Jesus and living a godly life, desiring to start a new family. Jared and Kelly came alongside. We're like tag team teammates, right, in that. But that is the success story of community. When you do it well, when you speak the truth in love, and you see people walk in repentance, and now if you ask that couple, I think they would say, no way do we regret that. Absolutely, that was God's best for us, but I'm sure it wasn't fun to hear at the time. It's a rugged commitment. All right, that's the longest point of the message, so we'll move on. We'll be a lot faster from now on, but let me, let me go on. That love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, with someone. Now, this principle is the idea that we need to be actually present face-to-face, and this is so important, particularly in our modern world. Mother Teresa famously said that loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world world. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Over the last 15 to 20 years, ever since the invention of social media and the digital age, there has been this increase, exponential increase of people filling out survey after survey, checking the box that they're lonely and that they're disconnected. The the loneliness bar is rising in our culture. And it's ironic because we are the most connected generation in human history, and yet we are the loneliest generation in history. Our relationships have been dwindled down to bits and bytes, texts and tweets. And as Sherry Turkle says, who's a sociologist at MIT, she wrote a book called Digital Connections May Offer the Solution of Companionship. This is what she said. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demand of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We would rather text than talk. We'd rather text than talk. And it's ironic that something called Facebook involves you never seeing someone face to face. Isn't that interesting? That word devotion that Paul uses in verse 10, be devoted to one another, is a powerful word. It's a word of familial, brotherly, and sisterly love. This commitment to be in each other's lives, to be with one another like family. Church, the body of Christ is not an event you attend once a week, but a people that you are with and that you do life with like a family. Listen to Paul when he describes family language in 1 Thessalonians. He says, instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives as well. That we wanted to give you not just the word of God, which is awesome, but our very lives as part of that. There is no substitute for personally being present with people, not through a screen, but in person. Sometimes the simplest thing you could do is just do the stuff you're already doing with one another. Are you eating? Are you eating? Yes. Then eat with people. Are you walking? With, are you, then go on a walk with someone. Are you going to the store? Then shop with someone. It's the principle of withnessing, right? 
Do what you're already doing, but incorporate other people into your life. We'll come back to that later. This is also so helpful when it comes to a brother or sister that's in pain. When your brother or sister is grieving loss or feeling pain over a, of a broken heart, one of the best things that you and I can do is go and be with them, not text them that we're praying for them, but to sit on their couch next to them. And you not even say anything, just be there, be with them. And love is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone, for someone. This is the principle that we're advocates, that we're allies with each other. Verse 10 ends by saying, honor one another above yourselves. This is not an egocentric relationship. I'm not in this friendship or relationship for what it can do for me. I'm seeking to put your needs above my own. I'm in your corner. Commonly in our culture today, this is our default response when things get hard. It's what I call the Homer, Homer gift syndrome, right? When things get hard, when someone else shares something awkward, when someone's treating you and be, as being annoying and they're hard to love, we approach it like this. I'm going to back away because you make me weird and you make me feel awkward, right? If I left that going, you would watch it all day long. It's one of my favorite gifts, right? We back away. We back away from friendships. We unfriend people. We unfollow people because they're just too difficult. And so we just push away. Biblical love doesn't do that especially for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, my wife has been reading a book by Jenny Allen called Find Your People. I know several of our ladies have started reading it. She's the founder of the, GIF, uh, the IF Gathering, not the GIF, the IF Gathering. And she tells a story in their small group of how their small group, like every time they meet together, inevitably someone will say this catchphrase. Whenever someone hears something hard or painful or hurtful or maybe even hurts each other or confesses a sin, whenever it kind of gets messy... Somebody in their group says, I'm not leaving the room. I'm not leaving the room. They're all sitting there in a group, and they're affirming to the person who's in pain or who's annoying or who's struggling or who's hurt, I'm not leaving you. I'm for you. I'm in your corner. I'm on your side. I'm for you for a long time. And, and even when people say hurtful things to us, even when things, when people that are, we love are hurtful back to us, we stay with them. Now, just a caveat here, I want to say, if you are in a situation where there's abuse going on or anything of that nature, that's not what I'm talking about here. If you're in an abuse situation, you should back away and you should pray and love that person from a distance and seek counseling and help for that. That's not what I'm talking about here. But in most cases, when, you, when things get hard in our relationships, we walk away, and what God's Word says is to stay, to stay with, to honor others above ourselves. I remember I was talking to a brother recently, uh, just a few years ago, actually, who, uh, and this is the total God thing, it's not me. I, I'm sharing this, and I hesitate to even use my examples because it makes it sound like it's me. It's totally the Spirit, but my buddy, a buddy of mine had gotten into some trouble. He was in legal trouble, was probably going to have to spend some time in jail, and typically when that happens as Christians, we're like, Homer Simpson, backing away. This is awkward, right? But I took him out to breakfast. We had a chat together, and I just shared my heart with him and just told him that I loved him and I cared for him and that I'm not walking away from you, bro, that you're dealing with this. And just prayed for him that God would change his heart. And like two, three years later now, this brother is in an every man a warrior group and loving Christ and in community. And God did. He redeemed all of that. That's not me. That's the spirit working in him. All I was doing was just being faithful to not give up on the guy. 
And that's just the power of love like this, that we don't give up on each other, that we stick with each other, and we do it unto Christ-likeness, that we are committed unto Christ-likeness. The goal is, of community is Christ-likeness. In verse 12 it says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, that we're continuing on this journey together, that they might come to know Christ. And you might say, that sounds like an agenda. Yep, it is. It is a friendship with an agenda because my agenda is your ultimate joy and happiness and I know that that only is found in Jesus Christ. And I want to see you come to know Christ better and better. We want to see that, that you would grow to maturity and mission in Christ because ultimately that's the only way you're going to be truly happy and find purpose in life. And so we're joyful that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it and that we're patient in affliction knowing that even in our hardest times are the times where God forms us and shapes us best. So we come alongside our brothers and sisters in affliction and suffer with them and then we're prayerful that we're praying for them that God would intercede and God would work in their lives. This is the picture of community, the rugged commitment to be with and for someone unto Christ-likeness. That's the kind of community that God wants to form in us and through us. But here's the thing. That's really hard. Can I get an amen about that? That's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to love people like that, because what do you do on the days when you just can't people today? Right? You with me? What do you do on those days? What do you do when the person you love doesn't want to hear your loving correction from the scripture that you said completely nice and kindly, and they react by blowing up in your face? Side note, that's how most people react when you say hard things to them. What do you do when that happens? What do you do when, as Matt Boyer says, you'd rather stick a hot poker in your eye than have a hard conversation with someone? What do you do when it's small group night and you don't feel like going to small group? What do you do? Where do you get the kind of power to have this community? That's the second point. The power for community. Where is it found? And Paul gives, a, gives us a hint of it in verse 11. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What does that mean? It means that any time that I'm lacking in this kind of love, this passion for my brothers or sisters in Christ, which is a lot, by the way, in my mind, in my life, then something is a muck in my heart. If I've lost that loving feeling, like the righteous brother said, then I need to do something in here. Something's going on in here that's wrong in me. I need to go back to God and restore my spiritual fervor from his source. And this is what author Tim Keller calls love philanthropy. I love this phrase. I use it in weddings a lot. It's one of my favorite catchphrases nowadays. I didn't make it up. Tim Keller did. I don't even think it's a real thing, but we like it. Love philanthropy. Now, philanthropy, what is that? For you kids that don't know what that word means, and some of you adults are like, I don't know what that word means either, right? Philanthropy is the idea of being generous to charity. It's what we just described of giving money to the Crisis Pregnancy Center, that we're being generous to those in need, being generous to charities, being generous to that or this, uh, uh, this humanitarian effort. That's what phil- philanthropy means. Now, for you to be philanthropic, there must be another source of income that you're drawing from that allows you to be generous. Like, if you were giving to a charity and also getting your income from that charity, it wouldn't work. Eventually, the money would run out. It just doesn't work. 
You have to have an, another source of income that is supplying you so that you can be generous. Now, how does that work when it comes to love? How do you get the power to have this kind of rugged commitment for each other? Where do you get the energy to do that, especially when the people are hard to love? And let me just tell you the truth. Sometimes I'm hard to love, and sometimes you're hard to love. Can I get an amen about that? And if you're like, no, I am not. I am totally easy to love. Just look to your spouse or your parent or your sibling and ask them, and they'll tell you, no, you're not, right? No, we're all hard to love, and it's hard to love other people. There's all those days where you wake up and you're just like, whoa, something's wrong with them today. You need another source of love to draw from because you just don't have it in you to be generous with love like that. Where is it? First John 4 says it like this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. This is the source. Friends, do you realize how much God loves you? I'm not just talking about some kid song that you sing, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I'm saying, do you really know how much Jesus has loved you? Do you know that everything we just talked about, this rugged commitment to be with and for unto Christ's likeness, did you know that Jesus has done every single one of those things for you? That Jesus is ruggedly committed to us. And he's not a hypocrite who says he loves you and does nothing. No, he put his money where his mouth was. He hated what was evil for us, so much so that Jesus came into this world and dealt with evil once for all. Christ came down and dealt with evil and dealt a death blow to sin and death on the cross. And when he said, it is finished, evil was conquered and undone and sin was defeated and all your moral failings, all the things that, you never, that you've all made mistakes and all the dirty little secrets that no one else knows, Jesus took all of that and nailed it to the cross and canceled the debt. And Jesus clings to what is good for you, that he rose from the dead and he gives you new life in Christ and he will never, ever, 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 ever let you go. He's more sticky than your kids on your legs. He will never let you go. And he is committed to your good and transforming you to look more and more like him. And he causes all things to work to that end. And Jesus is with you. He knows what it's like to be in your skin. He's acquainted with humanity. He knows everything about our humanity and was tempted like us so he can empathize with us and sit on the couch with us and feel our pain and our hurts. He knows it all. And not only is he with you, but now he's in you through his Holy Spirit. That's what verse 13 says, that Jesus is filling you and in you this very moment by faith. And he is for you. He'll never leave the room. He will never leave the room. Even in that dark moment where you're looking at something on your computer, even in that moment where you betray other people's trust, even when you build, burn all the bridges around you, Jesus will never leave you. And he is always for you. And he went to the cross and back to prove it. And he wants to give you new life in him.
unto Christ's likeness, the abiding kind of life, a good life which makes you more like himself. That is your source. That is how you do it. That is the power that whenever I'm feeling unloving, whenever I'm feeling like I woke up on, si- on the side of the bed that just didn't make me feel good today, whenever I feel angry or irritated, go back to the cross, get alone and just look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have already done this for me and let your gospel truth melt my heart. Fill me with your spirit and energize me for the tasks. Energize me with the love that only comes from you. And when that happens... When we each individually commit to loving one another like this, can you imagine what kind of community is created from that? What kind of community of love? What would this community look like? And that's the missional effect. This community has amazing effects on the world around it. It literally changed the world, the community. This kind of community is winsome and attractive in a world that needs community desperately, in a world that's longing for community in every different place. We can be that. Verse 13 says that we share with the Lord's people, that we practice hospitality, that we care for the insiders and love the outsiders. And this was common in the early church. Listen to how the book of Acts describes it. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were sharing everything in common, fellowshipping together. Regularly, they were with one another and praying for one another. And as that last verse says, people outside noticed, and they wanted to be a part of it. Jesus said in John chapter 13 that they will know that you're my disciples by your churchy music. No, he didn't say that. They will know you're my disciples by your good theology and great biblical memorization. No, he didn't say that. They will know you're my disciples by your love. your love. I got to brag on one of our small groups. I asked permission to share this. I'm going to leave it nameless, but there's a small group in our church right now that's doing this right now. Acts chapter 2. There's a group in our, not my small group, a different small group that uh, had a member of their group that was struggling with back issues and was going to have to have back surgery. And this surgery was going to require this person to be out of work for two to three months. And for a lot of different factors, there's a lot more to this story than I could share in one. We want to show a video later. But there's a lot of this story. But for a lot of reasons, they couldn't qualify for aid. They couldn't get, get disability. And so they were really facing the prognosis of having two to three months with no check coming in. No funds or at least very limited funds. And wondering, how are we going to pay our bills? How are we going to feed our family? And so they shared this with our group, their group. And their group began to pray, God, what do you want to do? How do you want to provide? And all the other couples in the group, uh, I think there was five of them, they began praying and asking the Lord, what do you want to do in us? And they all kind of collectively began convicted that we need to do something. And so they all pulled their resources together, literally, just like Acts chapter 2. They pulled their resources together and raised $9,000. Five couples. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. $9,000. And they paid the rent for this couple for the rest of the year. They, They filled up their propane tank, which gas these days is not cheap. They filled that up. They gave them grocery cards and stuff. I mean, there's more to the story. They got a vacation for them because they were, I mean, dad wasn't going to be able to hang out with their kids for two to three months. So it's like they did all this stuff. Why? 
because they're loving, they're loving and they're ruggedly committed to be with and for someone unto Christ-likeness. And the watching world will say, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what kind of community is this? C.S. Lewis said the final apologetic or the final argument for the truthfulness of Christianity is the love of the Christians. Jesus, in his last prayer before he died, this is what he said. You ever think like the words before you die are really important? This was Jesus' prayer before he died for you. He said, Father, I've given them the glory that you've given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. It's everything we're talking about this morning. And this is the kicker. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Then, when they are brought to unity and love, then the world will know. Because the truths that we believe about Jesus are hard to stomach, that he was the God-man who came in the flesh, born of a virgin, died and rose again, which we celebrated a few weeks ago. And the watching world will be like, ah, that sounds crazy. That sounds unbelievable. I can't believe that. Why would I want to come and believe that? What made so many people come to the church interested in these outrageous claims? The love of the church. They saw the community and they said, I can't explain why you guys are the way you are unless these claims are true. Unless God is who he said he was, unless Jesus died for you, I don't understand. Did you know that Christianity was the first religion that broke down ethnic barriers? Up until that point in human history, religion was all based on ethnic ethnicities, what country we're from, and still to this day, it's still much like that. That if you lived in this city, you worshiped this God, in this city, you had this religion, in this country, you had this religion. But Christianity was different because it wasn't based on ethnicity, that Christ opened the way for all peoples to come. And so Christianity had all these different ethnicities as a part of it. And Christianity broke down the caste system like we talked about last week. So you had the rich hanging out with the poor. You had the highest class of Roman society eating together and fellowshipping with the lowest class. And that would never, ever happen. And so people looked at that community and said, what is it about you guys? And they would say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus in us. We love each other. And the rich could say, I'm no better than the poor because I have Christ in me. Church, we have an amazing opportunity. We have an amazing opportunity to be this kind of community. In a world that is isolated in the digital age, that is lonely and longing for real community, in a world that is divided by politics and pandemic opinions and polarization, we can be a collection, an alternative society that is ruggedly committed to be with and for one another unto Christ's likeness, regardless of our political opinions or ethnic divide or socioeconomic differences, we are one in Christ. And this kind of community draws the watching world, scratching their heads. How can Democrats and Republicans and sit in the same church and worship God? The answer is Jesus. That's it. Sorry, I'm getting a little passionate about this. <laughs> this is who we can be. How can people who disagree about COVID still love each other like this? And the answer is Jesus. And this is how. This is the way through. And this is the kind of community that will draw the outside world in. 
If we don't get this right, they'll run away from us. But if we get this right, they will come because they will see. There must be a God for you to love like this. And that's the final command towards the outsiders. It says to practice hospitality, which is a Greek word that combines two, which basically means turn strangers into friends. I want to challenge you this week to begin living like this. This community is not an exclusive place. Everyone is welcome here. It's one of our core values at Crossroads. Everyone is welcome. We have a great opportunity to love our neighbors and people around us with hospitality. And, and, and maybe you could turn a stranger into a friend this week that lives in this, that is in this building right now. Because if we can't love the people in here, how can we ever love the people out there? There's a lot of, we're a big church, a lot of people in this room. A lot of us don't know each other. How could we turn strangers into the friends? Here's a, here's a very simple, simple, simple idea. You got to eat, don't you? Everybody likes to eat. Can I get an amen about that? Amen, amen, amen. Amen just means it's true. It's not like sacrilegious to say that. Amen. I love to eat. Eat together. Eat with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Invite them over for a meal or accept somebody's invitation for a meal. What a simple idea, but what a powerful idea. This is what the early church did. They fellowshiped together. They ate together. We've been trying to do this with a group in our neighborhood of Crossroads folks that all live together. We've just scheduled Friday night, and we just said, all right, Friday nights, we're going to eat together and build relationships with one another. Every week, we're going to be together. It doesn't matter. We're just going to show up, and we're going to begin praying about how we can reach our community, our neighborhood, and be on mission for Jesus together. What if we did that? I heard a story of a family one time that uh, put uh, a pot roast in the crock pot before church. They didn't know who was coming over for lunch, but they were just ready. I don't care, whatever, we'll just invite somebody, we'll yank somebody last minute, you're coming, right, whatever. But it was a way to say, we are planning to be hospitable and meet someone else in our body that we don't know. This is the power of community, and we can be that evangelistic effect on the world. So we've got the picture of community. We know what love is, this rugged commitment to be with and for someone unto Christ's likeness. We've seen where the power comes from, from Jesus Christ being full of his spirit. And the missional effect is that the watching world wonders and scratches their head. What is up with you people? May we be that kind of church. Let's pray. Oh God, we cannot create this in ourselves. We so long for this, and I think many in this room want to live in this alternative society that is not divided by whatever else divides us, but is united because we are in union with you, that our oneness with you, Jesus, is flowing through us to one another, that we are all part of the same vine, and we trust in you by faith, and you've made us a family. You've made us a people of God. I pray that this place would be a place that is amazed by how God loves us and responds to that. So even in these next two songs, God, I pray that you would teach us as we respond by praising you and your reckless love, how much you, you loved us. And then God, how good your grace is that we are a people that comes together to sing your praises and love one another. Be glorified now as we respond.